It all started when I was a little girl. Christmas Eve, 2004. I was eight years old. Santa, is that you? Footfalls on the staircase echoed through the house as I jumped out of bed and ran past the doorframe to catch a glimpse of the man himself. Creak. 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 I waited patiently in the hall just outside my room. An outline appeared at the top of the stairs and then slowly made its way to me. The floorboards struggled to hold its weight as the sound of the bending wood ricocheted off the walls and burrowed into my ears. Creak. 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 Once the figure reached me, its form was illuminated. Bathed in the dim moonlight that shone through my bedroom window and leaked out into the hallway. My excitement was immediately replaced with pure terror. The thing standing in front of me was not Santa, not by a long shot. It was a walking shadow, a dense patchwork of pitch blackness in the shape of a man. I could neither breathe evenly in its presence, nor could I bring myself to run, petrified in a state of shock. Then he made his move. Darkness spilled out from the shadow man's hand as he extended his arms out over me. Soon I was encased in it. All light was fading from view. Aside from the pounding in my chest, all sound had seized as well. Daddy! All I could think to do was call out to my father. Surely he would rescue me from this nightmare. Daddy, help! I'm in here! course, he never showed. Wherever I was, whatever energy had enveloped me, I was now unreachable. My connection to the outside world was lost, and I was alone. Before the inclination to cry or scream further could kick in, my tomb broke apart and dissipated entirely, revealing new surroundings. I wasn't home anymore. Not even close. Despite the circumstances, it was breathtaking. Less a place than it was an endless expanse. There were constellations all around, at my sides, above, and even below me. The only thing that separated us was a thin, almost transparent glow. It made up a floor beneath my feet, a ceiling overhead and walls barely visible in the distance. It was an inexplicable light box, often some segment of the universe, partitioned from the rest. An absurd but brilliant architecture resting in the framework of space. And admiring the stars and galaxy, I took in a dreadful sight. Shadow Man was there with me, just a few yards from my position. He bolted in my direction and I ran, faster than I'd ever run before. Escape, however, was not an option. We were still in an enclosed environment. Large as it may have been, there were no exits, or at least none that I knew of. Still, guided by a pervasive fear, I ran. I ran until my lungs caught fire and my legs gave out. I collapsed, and that's when he struck. The predator leaned over his wounded prey and placed his hands over my chest. From there, I was drained. Not of my energy, but of something else. A swirl of glowing particles arose from my body as the silhouette craned his neck back in satisfaction, like a wolf howling at the moon. His dark, featureless face will forever be etched into my memory. And then, as I was nearly sucked dry of whatever the shadow sought from me, my consciousness wavered. 
In a matter of seconds, my eyelids dropped and the lights went out. At that time, I thought it was death taking hold. Even at eight years old, I welcomed it. Anything to end the torment. But as luck would have it, this was not death chasing and torturing me in a light box among the stars. It was something far worse. I awoke in bed, my father stationed at my side, trying his best to calm me. Come on, sweetie. It's okay. It's just a nightmare. I wrapped my arms around him and squeezed as tightly as I could, elated to see him again, when just moments before I was convinced I never would. It was a monster. It was going to get me. He pulled my arms away and held my hands in his, looking me right in the eye. It was just a bad dream. I won't let anyone hurt you, okay, Chelsea? Not ever. His words were comforting, but he was wrong. It wasn't a dream. You have to believe me, Dad. He sighed and smiled. Well, there's nothing we can do about it now. I'll leave the door open a crack and you try to get some sleep, okay? I nodded and he left, but I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. It wasn't a dream. I was certain of that. Every bone in my body rattled and the skin around them crawled at the mere thought of the shadow man and his light box. It was real. I knew it was. The years came and went. Every Christmas Eve was the same. Creaks on the stairs, followed by the shadow man taking me to his light box and bleeding me of my life force. Then, I would wake in my father's arms as he consoled me to the best of his ability. No matter how much I insisted that it was all true, my psychiatrist and father both believed it to be a reoccurring nightmare. Nothing more. Eventually, I stopped screaming in the middle of the night and pretended to be normal, if for no other reason than to be treated as such. I lied when I told them it was over. From that point forward, no one would ever have to know but me. It was my cross and mine alone to bear. More time passed and I grew up. I graduated from college and bought a house of my own. The light box stayed with me every step of the way, but I never backed down, outright refusing to let it control my life. This attitude gave me strength in the face of trauma, and for a while, I felt like I was winning. The Christmas Eves didn't get any easier, but the fear and misery I experienced in the aftermath that followed was fading faster with each passing year. If this was something I had to live with, at least I could do it on my own terms. It's what she would have wanted. But then, the unthinkable happened. Christmas Eve, 2019. This would be the first holiday I spent in my new home. Cree. Creak, creak. The sound was identical to the one from my childhood. Though I'd grown used to the routine, it didn't stop me from hoping each year that it would finally be over, especially now, being in a new location for the first time. Location, of course, didn't matter. I was its focus, not the place. Creak, creak, creak. I hid under my blankets as the goosebumps started forming. 
Being used to the routine also didn't afford me a thicker skin in the moments leading up to each event. As soon as it began, I was transformed into an eight-year-old girl again, frightened of the boogeyman. Creak. 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 This was it. I steeled myself and braced for the worst. The milky black fog then seeped under the covers and engulfed me completely, placing me in an all-too-familiar coffin. From there, the darkness relented and transferred me to that godforsaken light box in the sky. Everything looked the same, just as it always had, save for one glaring difference. The shadow man was gone. In his place, a gentleman in turn-of-the-century attire sitting at a desk. Hello, Chelsea. Please, have a seat. I think it's time we talked. I was floored. This had never happened before. There was never any dissonance in past events across years of being abducted. It was always the same. I can see that you're confused. Please, have a seat and all will be explained. The feelings that washed over me in this moment were... many. Relief over not being chased again, hopeful that this was the end of my many tortured holidays, and even proud that I'd somehow ended it myself, having stood my ground over the years. The one that bubbled to the surface above all the rest, however, was curiosity. That's why I did as instructed, and sat at the desk across from the mystery man, anticipating the answers he could offer me. Okay, Chelsea? Fire away. What is it you would want to know first? I pondered for a moment, and then asked, What is this place? The man smiled. It's the place where your kind come to rest after expiration. Expiration? I asked. You mean death? Yes. Not here specifically, of course. This is just where we harvest energy. I looked around at the vast emptiness. Really? There's nothing here. The man chuckled. <laughs> Of course there is. You just can't see it. We're a loose collection of molecules doing work at a subatomic level. Myself included. I only took this form to make things easier for you. Here, have a visual representation. The man snapped his fingers and all at once the light box vanished. We were still at the desk, but we're now at the center of a massive office space surrounded by what must have been thousands of cubicles all with their own workers, rifling through documents and filing cabinets and answering phone calls. I looked back to the man, still confused. I don't understand. Is this heaven? Are you angels? What's, what's going on? He scoffed. <laughs> angels? Heaven? That's just what you humans call us. Here, we're just celestial overseers in the next world. No labels, just work and dedication. Nothing was making sense. Why am I here? Why is any of this happening to me? The man offered a look of vague concern. Well, Chelsea... Heaven doesn't run on will alone. It needs energy to keep going, and we take it from people like you. A short man with glasses hobbled over with a stack of paperwork. Overseer, what should I do with... Not now, Lucian. Can't you see I'm busy? Lucian's eyes widened with regret. Sorry, sir. 
He took off into the maze of cubicles, a trail of papers left on the floor in his wake. I'm sorry about that. It's so hard to find good help these days. Where were we? Oh yes, energy. He leaned back in his chair and crossed his arms. Despair is the greatest energy reserve in the universe. One soul's worth is enough to power heaven for years. Because of that, we send operatives out every now and again to collect soul pieces from humans. You are the next candidate on the list. Me? Why? I asked. He leaned forward and his lips contorted into a wicked smile. Your mother's death? Ring any bells? It was a perfect storm, really. Your mother passing on Christmas Eve, the night when a child is supposed to be at their happiest? From that point on, the holiday was tainted for you. You hurt with every breath you've breathed since, but the anniversary of her death brings you to our world. It's when your despair is at its peak, ripe for collection. A knot formed in the pit of my stomach. As hard as it was to overcome the shadow man's visits, it was nothing compared to the pain I felt every single day over the loss of my mother, even as an adult. When I was six years old, I wrote a letter to Santa asking for a cure. It would be my Christmas gift to her, to see her better and walking around again. Cancer took her away, and it destroyed our family. When the Shadow Man first came up those stairs years ago, I desperately hoped it was Santa, so I could ask him to bring her back. The tears came without warning and quickly wet my face. So what is this? You're letting me go? His boisterous laughter bounced off the cubicles and rang in my ears. <laughs> Quite the contrary, Chelsea. Now that your soul is damaged, I want to remap it, insert my own pieces, and build a better weapon. With you, we can extract more energy, enough to sustain us for centuries to come. My heart sank when I realized what he was saying. A shadow man. I would become a creature like him. No, I refuse. Oh, Chelsea. <laughs> you don't have a choice in the matter. He snapped his fingers and we were in another room. I was strapped down in a chair and could not move as much as I tried. The man came around wearing a lab coat and brought with him a cart full of sharp utensils. Don't worry, Chelsea. This is only going to hurt a lot. I screamed, but it didn't faze him. He picked up a silver scalpel and carved deep into my chest. The pain was intolerable, and I vocalized it. No need to cry, Chelsea. You have a lot of tissue around your soul, but I'll get to it. Just you wait. It'll all be over soon. Though it shouldn't have been possible... He reached his arm all the way into me. The pain had yet to subside, but this sensation took the foreground. It was undoubtedly the strangest thing I've ever felt. Ah, there it is. Lucian, bring me the pieces. Lucian stumbled in with a tray of jars, each with a faint orb of light inside, and then placed it on the cart. Thank you, Lucian. You may leave. The man awkwardly reached for a jar, his other arm still in my chest. Lucian was still there, watching. Here, sir, let me help you. Lucian attempted to push the tray closer. It collided with the man's arm and fell to the floor, breaking every last jar and freeing the soul fragments within, creating a remarkable disk of light in the middle of the room that grew larger with each passing moment. The man pulled his arm out of my chest. 
God damn it, Lucian. I told you to leave. If the light from these souls reacts with hers, she could reconstitute and wake. We'll have to wait for the next bridge. You idiot. The light washed over the room and filled my field of view. I was entombed again, but not in darkness. It was a soothing energy that seemed to heal my wounds and render me painless. Then, like the darkness before, it had dissipated and transported me far, far away. In a strange turn of events, I'd been saved. I woke in the comfort of my own bed at home, jumping upright with a loud gasp, taking in as much air as I could. After gathering some composure, I noticed a slight burning between my breasts, so I ran to the bathroom, removed my bra, and faced the mirror. That's when I saw it. It was a souvenir from heaven. A scar right where the man cut me open, a reminder of things to come. This Christmas Eve, when my despair bridges the gap between our worlds, I'll be waiting. However foolish it may be, when I'm in heaven again, I will stop at nothing to see my mother. Now that I know an afterlife exists, it's the only thing on my mind. Mom, if you're out there listening somewhere, watching over me, just know that I'm coming and I won't let them have me. We'll be together again. You, me, and Dad. I promise. I'm going to bring you back. Whatever it takes. Day one. Go down to the end of the street. At the end, turn left and walk until the road ends. I clicked off the old-fashioned micro-cassette recorder as I stared down the street. How did it know what to tell me? I mean, the plain brown box containing the recorder and the tape inside had been delivered to my job, but I didn't actually listen to it until I got home. At work, I could have left from four or five different doors, all of which should have been thrown off the specific instructions that got me started on this wild goose chase. And from home, where I actually began following the tape's instructions, before the mistake of not starting at where the tape was delivered dawned on me, I should have gotten wildly off course immediately. And yet... I didn't think I was. So far, every turn, every landmark on the tape had matched what I was seeing. Almost like the instructor had known what I was going to do before it happened. That did make some sense, of course. The two videos I've been given did show me things that haven't happened, at least not yet. In one, I think I kill someone. In another... I see myself getting beaten to death. Shuddering, I clicked the button again as I reached the dead end. Good. Now look to your right. Just past the end of the chain link fence. You see the path there? Follow it into the woods. I looked up at the sky and felt a growing unease as I hesitated. It was starting to get dark, and I was being stupid. Following some mystery instructions so I could... What? Well, the odd voice of the instructor had made that very clear at the beginning of the tape, hadn't he? Yesterday, you received a gift in the form of two glimpses into what might be. What actually happens is up to you, of course. The instructions that follow this message are merely giving you a helping hand along the path, and you can choose to listen or not, obey or not. Just understand this. If you do not comply with the instructions, if you do not help fulfill what occurs on the first video you watched, 
And if you do not take human life before sunrise, you will die. Day negative one. I woke up to a banging on my front door. My first panicked, sleepy thought was a home invasion. But then the banging stopped, and as I got up and crept to the door, I heard an engine rumble to life as a delivery truck lurched away. Opening the door, I saw a small white box that had been left on my porch. No label or address, just a bit of tape to secure the plain paper wrapped around a similarly plain cardboard box. Inside the box were two DVDs, each with a printed label on top. Disc 1. Drink me. Disc 2. Eat me. I figured it was an odd joke from a friend or an ill-conceived marketing scheme from some company desperate for word of mouth. And I did consider the idea of a virus, but when I ran my software, it showed up as an MP4 file and nothing else more sinister. So I played Drink Me first. It was a grainy video, but of good resolution, and even in the low light of the woods, I could make out a person standing at a well. It took only a moment of confused staring for me to realize I was looking at myself. That made no sense. I'd never been at a well like that. It was a small pitched roof and twin set of pulleys and ropes. And I'd never stood staring down into that well, clearly hearing the same sound the camera was picking up. The echoing cry of a baby far below. One of the well ropes trailed down into the dark while the second ran to a bucket that was on the ground next to the well. As I watched the video me bent down and hefted the bucket that was on the ground to the lip of the small well. It was obviously very heavy, and once the other me stepped back I could see why. It was piled high with smooth river rocks. A small scream escaped me as my video self pushed the bucket of rocks over the edge and down into the well below. There was a large thump as it hit the bottom, and a moment later the cries of the baby spooled away into nothing. It was half an hour later before I could make myself watch the Eat Me disc. It was again a single video file, but this time the scene was immediately recognizable. It was my bedroom. I saw myself in the bed and a figure in a hooded jacket standing next to it, staring down at the bed holding what looked to be the wood axe that I bought last year. Before I could cry out, they started chopping me in my bed. At first, the sounds were muffled and harder, but with each blow, they took on a wetter, softer quality. And with each rising arc of the axe, thick strings of blood and meat began getting slung against the walls, even as strips of ruined fabric and comforter filler drifted down like the inside of some macabre snow globe. I sat back speechless as the video closed. Had I really just watched myself murder a baby in a well and get butchered by an intruder while I slept? I was a wreck that day and the next, unsure of what to think or do, if anything. After all, who could I tell or show it to without making myself look crazy or dangerous? But that's when something new came. The tape with the instructions. Day one. By now you should have reached the well. Go to it and look into the bucket sitting on the ground. Walking over, I felt my stomach tightening. There was no way I could go through with this. Whatever this was, whatever this choice they were trying to trick me into making, there was no way I could hurt an innocent baby. Could I? And if I threw down this bucket of... The bucket wasn't full of rocks, it was... 
in fact empty, except for a small video camera. Pick up the video camera from the bucket and put this audio recorder inside. Do not stop the tape from playing and lower it into the well. When that is done, step back 10 feet and start recording. Frowning, I looked around for a sign of someone else watching me or approaching, but there was no one. What was this? None of it made sense. Heart pounding, I bent down and snatched the camera out like it was being pulled from the mouth of an alligator. Just seeing the bucket made me sick, even without it being filled with... I let out a gasp as I saw the second bucket further around the well. It was just like from the video, brimming with slick gray stones from a riverbed somewhere. I let out a small scream as a baby started crying close by, but no, not a baby. Just the sound of one. A recording coming from the tape on the machine, a tape recorder I was supposed to lower down into the well. I felt a sense of dreamlike relief as I slipped the crying noise into the bucket and lowered it down into the dark. I still didn't understand anything, but at least a real baby wasn't getting hurt. Day negative 9,233. It was weird seeing mom and dad so young. Like living memories that I didn't really have except from pictures. My first memory of my dad was him dying of lung cancer, and my last of mom was a month, well, before all of this started. But seeing them young and happy, holding me in their arms, so proud and hopeful for all of us, it made it all harder. Harder, but no less necessary. So I wait until they've put me in the crib and turned out the lights, and then I crawl in through the back window. Back in the car, I put the bassinet in the passenger floor. I'll have to drive all night to get to the well, and my hope is that the baby doesn't wake up for most of the ride. Doesn't work out that way, of course. That's fine. When I start crying because I'm thirsty and hungry, I don't stop to find a bottle. I just hit record. Day one. As I hit record on the camera, everything seems to shimmer for a moment. The air is colder now, and the sky seems a bit darker. How late was it? I look at my watch, but it's dead now. So is my phone. Day negative 9,232 slash 1 slash negative 932. Putting my phone away again, I look up to see a figure approaching. It... It's me. Lifting the camera, I make sure I frame it right. Catch it all. I have to be able to see everything when I watch Drink Me, after all. I watch my other lift the bucket of rocks and wonder who or what he really is. Does he really think he's about to throw a bucket of rocks onto a child? Should I tell him it's okay, that it's just a recorder? But no. He acts like he doesn't even see me. It's better not to draw his attention. He shoves the bucket over the edge, and below, the crying stops. Despite myself... I feel my gorge rise a little as I look down at my feet and try to keep my balance. When I look up, the other me has vanished. Hitting the button again, I stop recording as another shimmer goes across my vision. In my right coat pocket, I hear my phone buzz. In my left, a muffled voice, heart pounding. I reach in and take out the recorder done what needs to be done here. Now you can go home and rest. You've earned it. Day one. 
I know it's impossible that I'll sleep when I get home. I have too many questions, too many fears. And yet, despite everything, I'm not back an hour before I climb into bed. I can examine the recorder closer tomorrow, go back with lights and check the well if... Well, if I can't just make myself forget. For now, I just need... I just need to sleep. Day two. I'm deep asleep on the bed when I approach. The axe is where I remembered it to be, and it should be sharp enough to make this quick. I've done so many terrible things, so many times, and every time I hope that time, that day, will be the last. I read once that time is a lie. I think that's probably true, but it's only part of the truth. Time is also a web, nearly invisible, but sticky and strong and binding. It holds us in place and traps us. I think I remember eating a woman once, but it was not myself at the time. I think I remember meeting a killer at a bus stop, but I ran away and tried to live. I think I remember being tricked by a man on a plane, but I lost who I really am. I don't know which names or faces are real anymore. The web isn't sticky enough for me now. And instead of fighting to get free of it, I'm holding on desperately, terrified of what happens if I fall further away than I already have. And if time will no longer adhere to me, I will tangle it, twisting it in knots of paradox and nests of tangled causality until I'm trapped again all the same. Maybe this time it'll work. I don't feel any different yet, but the body in the bed is already gone and I'm still here. Maybe that means it worked. And I'm the last in the tangled chain I've made. Maybe it's finally... Behind me, the floor creaks softly. And I begin to weep. I knew something was off from the moment I got to work and I saw some guy leaving my boss's office. Sometimes you just get a feeling about certain people, you know? There wasn't anything that really stood out about him. He didn't wear a black cape or a hood to hide devil horns. He didn't have soul-piercing red eyes and a sinister smirk. He didn't rub his hands maliciously while cackling. He didn't do anything like that. He was just a normal guy in a normal business suit, but when he walked by me, I got that feeling you get when you miss a step and you're about to fall on your face before you realize you're in a bed and it was all just a dream. The problem was, with this guy, there wasn't that immediate relief afterward. I was just left feeling cold at the pit of my stomach. My boss motioned for me to come in. Michael, can I have a word? I tucked my construction hat under my arm and stepped into his office. Who the hell was that? I asked as soon as the stranger was out of earshot. He shrugged. New supplier. Have a seat. I sat down. What's he a supplier of? He looked at the contract on his desk and read... Enduro Flex Heavy Duty Asphalt. We should be getting our first shipment sometime this week. Never heard of Enduro Flex. Neither have I. It's new and dirt cheap, so we're going to give it a try, but that's not why I called you in here, he said. It's not? He waved a dismissive hand. No, no. I wanted to talk about your schedule. We've had a rough winter. You know the rope. The road needs fixing, and the city wants it done pronto. We're going to have to work around the clock to get this done or risk losing the contract to the competitors. I'm going to need you to work nights for the next month. He 
You can't be serious, I answered. I hated working nights. I'd done my time in my first couple of years working for the company. A night here or there was fine, but a whole month? Talk about a punch to the balls. I tried not to show my anger as I gripped my hat tighter. He continued. I needed someone with experience out there. Someone who can get the job done fast. You can go home today, Michael. Get some rest. Come back tomorrow night. I'll have your assignments ready by then. You're the boss, I mumbled as I got up and left. I took the free time off and tried to adjust to my new schedule, but on such short notice, coffee was the only thing keeping me awake through the night. first couple of shifts went by without incident. I wasn't sure when we'd start using the new asphalt, or if I'd even notice a difference when we finally did, but if what happened a few nights ago was any indication, yes, there was a very noticeable difference. Chuck and I rolled up to our first assignment that night. A main road going through the suburbs. The day and evening crews had already stripped the street and laid down fresh gravel. I could even see a short strip of fresh, still steaming asphalt on the other side of the median. If we'd missed the evening crew, we hadn't missed them by long. Still, it was weird for them not to be there before the handoff, but it was even weirder that they left the paver at the site instead of bringing it back to us so we could fill it up before coming. The boss had just assumed they were still working and had told us to take the truck and join them there. Where's the crew? asked Chuck. (sighs) Must have clocked out already, I replied. Where's our crew? I hadn't noticed. The rest of my team hadn't shown up yet. Technically, we could do the work, just the two of us, but it was unusual not to have a few extra pairs of hands and eyes. Uh, I don't know, I replied. Ask dispatch? He let out a groan and grabbed his phone while I exited the truck and checked the road. The gravel was nice and even, ready for asphalt to be laid over it. It wasn't going to take us very long to get the job done, I thought. Chucks popped his head out the window. They called in sick. I raised an eyebrow. All of them? He gave an exaggerated shrug. Yeah, all of them. I rolled my eyes and sighed loudly. <sighs> Alright. Let's get this show on the road. Boss wants the street ready to drive on by morning. Park the truck, I'll get the paver. I was already pretty irritated about having to drive the paver all the way back to fill it up again, so when I approached and realized the evening crew had left it running, I nearly blew a gasket. Anyone could have wandered by and stolen it. Any kid could have slipped behind the wheel and gotten himself or someone else killed. And if that wasn't bad enough, they'd left nearly a full load of asphalt in the back. I could already picture myself wasting half the night struggling to clear it out now that it had a chance to harden. I stomped the rest of the way and climbed on the back of the bed to get a better look inside. To my relief, the asphalt was still steaming hot and didn't appear to have set yet. I grabbed a rake and ran it across the surface. Yeah, it was still good. What a relief. I slipped behind the driver's seat, hit the gas, turned her around. We did a U-turn to the other side of the median where I waited for Chuck. It wasn't long before I saw the reflector strips of his construction vest. I rolled down the window and motioned for him to go around back to help me. I could have managed without him and him without me, but protocol was protocol. He gave me the thumbs up and I started pouring the asphalt. The paver screamed in protest. Imagine the shriek of a cat put through an amplifier at a death metal concert. In my mirror, I could see Chuck covering his ears and turning away. I stopped and jumped out of the paver. I was starting to understand why it hadn't been emptied. Something caught in the feeder conveyor? I asked. Chuck shook his head. 
Not from what I can see. The asphalt came out just fine. Damn, thing's just really loud. What about in the gears? No. I gave the paver a quick inspection, but everything looked normal to me. Ear protection? I offered. Please, he replied. We each put on a pair of noise suppression headphones and went back to our duties, this time relying solely on hand gestures. I could hear the mechanical shrieks even through the muffling headphones, but I tried to work past it and kept pouring, hoping whatever was causing the disturbance would eventually resolve itself. Hopefully it would stop before waking up the whole neighborhood. We'd barely gotten halfway through the strip of road that needed to be paved before Chuck motioned for me to stop. I stopped the process, but the screams continued this time. Maybe the issue with the engine? Pulled the key from the ignition, and the mechanical shrieks diminished, but I could still hear... something. Before I could look back, Chuck was pounding at the window. He was yelling something and talking really fast, but I couldn't hear him over the headphones. As soon as I pulled them off to listen to him, my ears were flooded with the ungodly sound coming from behind the paver. The volume slowly lowered, but Chuck didn't bother repeating himself. He opened the door, grabbed me by the vest, and pulled me out of the vehicle. What the hell is going on? I asked angrily. Chuck didn't answer. Just dragged me around back where, to my horror, I found a human-shaped bump in the asphalt. Fucking hell, I whispered. I didn't even think to question how it happened. I hadn't even felt the paver run over anything. Had I been that careless? The lump suddenly moved. Its chest sunk and it suddenly let out an agonized scream. Oh my god. He's still alive, said Chuck. We need to get him out, I answered. In a panic, I unhooked the rake from the back of the paver and used it to try and strip the asphalt away. I dug desperately, my trembling hands barely able to keep a hold of the handles I imagined the burnt face I'd uncovered beneath. Chuck just stood there in shock, and I didn't have the mental fortitude to think to have him call an ambulance. I dug and dug and dug, and then I hit gravel. I wasn't able to register what was going on. I kept digging and dragging the rake around in every direction, but all I ever reached was more gravel. There's no one there, whispered Chuck. But I... I started, staring at the ground in disbelief. I dug out every inch of where the silhouette had been, but Chuck was right. There was nothing underneath. He looked at me in confusion and fear. It, it was an air pocket. An air pocket shaped like a human. What about the scream? I asked. He pointed to the paver. It was coming from that thing, right? I nodded hesitantly. Right. We'd both heard the scream coming from the pavement itself. I was sure of it. We looked at one another for a moment as we tried to decide what to do. My heart was beating so hard I thought I was going to pass out. I went on autopilot. I don't even remember walking back to the paver and I can only vaguely recall telling Chuck we had to get the job done. I started the paver up again and ignored the inhuman screeches coming from it as asphalt began pouring out. This time, I made it all the way down the strip before I stopped and realized Chuck wasn't following. I looked in the rearview mirror and found him still standing at the spot where the air bubble had been. He wasn't looking at the hole I dug in the pavement, though. He was looking at another lump. My eyes traveled up the road of smoking asphalt to the dozens of human-shaped bumps leading all the way back to my vehicle. You can only deal with so much fear before you start to go numb.
I parked and stepped out of the paver. I could hear the figures screaming. All of them were screaming so loud it was sickening. They weren't forming sentences or even words, just ungodly, agonized, inhuman moans of absolute torment. They were writhing, shuffling, shifting in every direction, like skiers caught in an avalanche. Some appeared to be facing up, while others were on their knees and seemed to be trying to crawl away. But they could barely move from the weight of molten rock covering them like a blanket. I could hear the gravel underneath them, crackling in the asphalt above them, shifting and buckling as the figures reached out for freedom. It was horrible. I grabbed the rake and desperately ran it over the bumps, convinced I could somehow save and unearth the figures trapped inside. But just like before, there was nothing but street underneath the asphalt. I couldn't understand what I was seeing. It was like a magic trick gone wrong. It was impossible. I thought I was losing my mind every time I turned the asphalt over. But thankfully I wasn't the only one seeing this. Chuck could see them. I could see the terror in his eyes as he just stood there and watched me. In a way it was comforting not to go through this alone. Even though he wasn't being much help. Black Rocky fingertips began stretching out from the flat surface next to me. That's when I dropped the rake and backed out onto the median. More fingers and then hands and then faces emerged from everywhere, covering every inch of the asphalt. There were hundreds of them, maybe even thousands, I'm not sure. I could see their features more clearly now, as though the surface had become a wax mask. I could see individual creases in their fingers. I could make out their noses, sunken lips, and wide open mouths as they continued screaming for help. I will never forget the sound of those cries. And then I heard the compact roller starting up, with Chuck at its helm. He looked at me with the eyes of a shell-shocked soldier. We have to get the job done, he said. I couldn't stop him. Hell, I didn't even try. I just watched in shock as he began flattening the asphalt. I remember the crunching sound as he passed over the silhouettes trapped in the rocks. It reminded me of the sound my arm had made when I fell from the jungle gym in grade school and broke it in three places. The job, he mouthed. We have to get the job done. As he rolled over the lumpy strip, the screams became morphed in a way that I couldn't properly explain to you. It was the sound equivalent of trying to drink with a broken straw. The noise was still there, but it couldn't quite make it out. Chuck ran over the pavement as many times as it took for it to become acceptably flat. I could see him repeating the same six words over and over again to himself. The compact roller came to a stop and he sat there with his head in his hands. I think he might have been crying. Nightmare was over. I swallowed hard and looked at the street. I could still see the faces, now stretched out flat as pancakes. They were still screaming, but the sound was muffled like they were yelling into a pillow or something. I just stood there, watching and listening to the chorus of pain for hours. It wasn't until the asphalt had completely dried and hardened that the screams finally stopped. Maybe they were just too low for me to hear them anymore. I'm not sure. 
The pavement took six whole hours to dry, six times as long as it normally would, and I stood there the whole time. I went home when the sun came out, still in shock from what I had seen. I called in sick for my next few shifts. Today, I drove back to that street, maybe out of morbid curiosity, or maybe I needed closure. I don't know. Maybe I was hoping the pavement would look normal to me, and I'd just move on, you know? I should have left well enough alone. When I looked at the road, I could still just barely make out their twisted, grief-stricken faces in the porous surface. They're on that street. And on every other street we've paved since then. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories that I picked out. We haven't done something like this in a little while, so I figure we'll do it for this one, since I think the second story poses a really interesting question. Um, If you had the ability to change something you did in your life, or change something that happened, something you didn't have control over in the first place... Would you go back and do that? Or, if it was something you had control over but you didn't like the way it turned out, or you would have handled it differently with with the new perspective you have now, would you go back and change it? Or are you the type of person who believes, like, messing with the past is way too dangerous and no one should be doing it? Personally, I'm in the school of thought that everything kind of happens for a reason, Um, even if it's not a good thing, you know, there's a reason for everything, I believe. So personally, I wouldn't go back and change anything that I've ever done. I do have some regrets about things for sure, but I couldn't, if I could, I could not bring myself to go back and change anything because I feel like everything that you do in life shapes you in a certain way to get you to where you need to be and to be who you need to be maybe who you want to be but I'm interested to hear your take I know we have a pretty vast audience here ton, big age range big gender range big life experience change it's all around it's all over the place around here so I'm really interested to see what you all would do if you were given the chance to change something would you do it not knowing what the outcome would be for your later life you know what I mean Let me know what you think. I think it would be really interesting to get a conversation going about that. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening. Let me know what your favorite story was in the comment section below. And I will see you very soon with a new video. As always, everyone, take care and sleep tight.